The following message was given on November 27, 2022, during the evening worship service at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. The title of tonight's message is, So You Think You're Saved? Prove It! 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, let's read that verse. It starts off as a continuance of verse 6. So that, result clause, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sermon title tonight is, So You Think You're Saved? Prove It. And it doesn't take a Sherlock Holmes to know where I got that sermon title, hopefully. It's in verse 7, Proof of Your Faith. Let's start with our introduction this evening. Someone comes up to you, believer or unbeliever, I've had this happen more than a few times, and asks what proofs you have that tell you that you are saved. What would be your answer? I don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to think about it. Somebody said, how do you know you're saved? What's the evidence? What are the proofs? As verse 7 says, so the proof of your faith. Let me give you what, in my opinion, are the top five I've heard that are unbiblical. You can write one down for each of the lines next to the number. Five unbiblical answers to the question, how do you know you're saved, or what are the proofs that you're saved? Unbiblical answer number one would be this, quote, I don't need proof, I know I'm saved. I don't need proof, I know that I am saved. That's an unbiblical answer. And we know that from verse 7, right off the bat. You don't need proof, then why does he say the proof of your faith, right? An apostle says this is proof of your faith, and to say I don't need proof would be a direct counter to what the apostle said. Verse 2, or number 2, excuse me. Another unbiblical answer I've heard before is, I walk by faith, not by sight or proofs. I walk by faith, not by sight or proofs. Sounds... Very spiritual. Again, contradicted by verse 7 and other verses. Number one, I don't need proof. I know I'm saved. Number two, I walk by faith, not by sight or proofs. Third unbiblical answer. We can never be sure we are saved. Only the Lord knows. We can never be sure we are saved. Only the Lord knows. Sounds like a very spiritual answer. I'm too humble to trust that I am saved. I'm too too humble to assume that I am. Only the Lord knows. There's a flavor of Catholicism in that. Most Catholics are... I had somebody, uh, an unbeliever, ask me, who's a Catholic, uh, a few weeks ago. How do you know you're saved? Do you know? Do you have any doubts about your salvation, or do you believe you're going to heaven? I said, absolutely, no doubts. He just laughed. Those Catholics think that's outrageous. It's so arrogant. So number three, we can never be sure we're saved. Only the Lord knows. Number four. This is the answer, by the way, of uh, that Hollywood actor who claims to be saved. And his name escapes me. He's a black actor, very famous. 
Denzel Washington, yeah, this is, this is his answer. My faith is a private thing. He won't talk about his faith. He says it's a private thing. Requiring no proof. My faith is a private thing requiring no proof. Kind of going with number one. In other words, the implication here is, how dare you ask me that? Our faith is not private. Denzel Washington probably isn't a believer. I've read extensively about what he claims to be his saving faith, but... Uh, there's no evidence of it. My faith is a private thing requiring no proof. And lastly, number five, the most frightening statement I've heard is this, number five, I leave whether I'm saved to God on judgment day, end quote. Oh my goodness, it's a little late then, isn't it? I'm going to leave it to God on judgment day? You really want to wait till then? I leave whether I'm saved to God on judgment day. Again, sounds very humble, very trusting of God, dead wrong. Under these five, you can write down, these are horrifically unbiblical answers to a very important question. These are horrifically unbiblical answers to a very important question. How do you know that you're saved? Now underneath that, the question has been posed to me, again, more than a few times over the years, implying that this is a wrong discussion. No Christian who is walking with Christ would ever have this discussion. We trust God. We don't look for proofs. To look for proofs is, means I'm doubting God. So number one in your note sheet, is it wrong then to, is it a wrong thing to ask ourselves this question? How do I know that I'm saved? What are the proofs? Is it a wrong thing to ask that? Absolutely not. That's the answer. In fact, the Bible demands that we do this. Only a pious, Bible ignorant, professed believer would think that this is wrong. Piety is false holiness. How do I know that I'm saved? What are the proofs? That's a wrong question, many people think. The vast majority of professed believers that I've run into in my life outside of our church here do not think that this is at all a subject that any Christian should be pursuing. There's something just dirty and wrong about trying to test your own faith and look for proofs that you're truly saved. That's kind of the idea that I've run into over the years. And I've even in counseling, I had one person years ago when I said, well, it's in the Bible, a person went like this. Wow, okay. That pretty well takes care of the Bible. So I said to the person, well, then discussion's over. If you don't want to hear the Bible, you just wave it off. There's nothing, I mean, I'm not here to tell you who's going to win the Super Bowl. I'm here to tell you what the Bible is. If you want Bible counseling, then there's nothing I can do for you. The person got up in anger and walked out. So, number two, is looking for evidence one is saved really lack of faith? That's the fundamental question. And this is error. There is a fundamental error, a fundamental error among believers today regarding this issue. And this is the error. Well, this is actually confronts the error. Here is the fundamental error, the denial of the statement. I didn't phrase this very well, and I knew it when I was typing it, but I just did not have time this afternoon to correct this. 
So I don't want to be any confusion here. The fundamental error is not the purple italicized statement I'm going to give you now. The fundamental error would be the rejection of the statements. You need to write that under number two on the blank lines. The fundamental error rejects the blue or purple italicized statement you're going to fill in. Okay, are we clear on that? The fundamental error is the rejection of what you're now going to fill in. I should not have said in the sentence above it, there's a fundamental error among believers today regarding this issue, and it is this. I should have said regarding this issue, and it counters this statement, is what it should say. There's a fundamental error among believers today regarding this issue, and it opposes or counters this biblical teaching. That would have been better. So I apologize for that. I hope nobody's confused on that. Here's the statement that is biblical. The Bible teaches one must be saved by faith alone, and as I said in this morning's sermon, which just happened to coincidentally intersect this series, um, one must be saved by faith alone, but one must test for evidences of saving transformation. One must test for evidences of saving transformation. I mentioned some verses by review in this morning's sermon that dealt with this issue, and only one of those will I repeat. I purposely left the rest out. So the Bible teaches one must be saved by faith alone, but one must test for evidences of saving transformation. I can't tell you enough how this is totally unheard of by most Christians. Absolutely unheard of. From pastors down to in the pews, never have heard this. I think this is outright heresy. It really goes back to Number two of your unbiblical answers, I walk by faith, not sight, or proofs. I have gotten furrowed brows and like outrageous looks from this. It just shows how unscriptural Christians are and how ignorant we are. Let's take a jet tour on this issue in passages I did not mention this morning. Matthew 7, you already know this one. We spent extensive time in it. I'm just going to fly by these as fast as you can turn to them. I'll be done with them. Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 15, beware of the false prophets or teachers, Matthew 7, 15, who come to you in sheep's clothing. They always do. Heretics always dress like Christians. And inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their profession. Fruits. So you know false teachers by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from Thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So again, so every good tree professes conversion or bears good fruit. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. So what is the test that Christ is using here? Profession of faith or fruit? Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. It's impossible. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's referring to a professed believer, whether it's the um, false teachers in verse 15 or the everyone in verse 21 where he broadens the scope from false teachers in verse 15 to everyone in verse 21. These that claim to be believers. This is one of the most frightening verses in the New Testament for me. But this tree is a professed believer. Okay? And when there's no fruit, they go to hell. It's not profession. It's fruit. 
And he drives that home in verse 20 concerning the wolves in verse 15. So then you will know them, referring back to verse 15, you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21 now, he expands it to all professed believers. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So he's referring to now all lordship, faith-only believers. Not everyone who says, professes, claims to be saved, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So is it profession in verse 21 that proves? No, he says, not everyone who says, professes, will enter. But he who does, what is the test? Doing the will of God. That's the test. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is an astounding passage of judgment. John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. John 3, 19 to 21. John chapter 3, 19 to 21. These are proofs. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds are evil. It's not just that they're sinners, but that they love sinning. This is extremely important. He's giving a test of an unbeliever. It is a loving of darkness that drives deeds that are evil. We all have deeds that are evil. But a true believer does not love the darkness. Notice how much he talks about doing and practice. Verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light, does continuously. Prasso is the word does. It means to practice. Okay? So actually the word does in verse 20 is more accurately translated in the English. It should be as practice, the word that is used in verse 21 for the English. But the word practice in verse 21 is a different Greek word. So in verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Stays away from the light. So this is a person, as an unbeliever, who claims to be a believer, because he's talking about those who believe in verse 18. And in verse 19, they do evil while loving the darkness. That's an unbeliever. In verse 20, it's doing evil while avoiding light. This, of course, could be done by a professed believer by avoiding teaching in the Bible. The avoidance of the light of the truth of the gospel, the avoidance of the light of the word of God, massive Bible ignorance, as I've shared, is an evidence that one is an unbeliever, not knowing the truth. So he does evil, hates the light by not wanting to be exposed by it. These are individuals who don't want to hear the truth. So they do evil and love darkness. The opposite now, they do evil and hate the light in verse 20. Now look at verse 21, it's even worse. These are fruit of unbelief. But he who practices the truth, this is poieo, continuously practices the truth, comes to the light. This is not profession, this is practice. Do you see that in verse 21? It doesn't get any clearer than that, does it? That's simple, right? The evidence of conversion, the test of conversion, is practice, poieo, to create, to do, to make. The end goal is to come to the light. Notice, he who practices the truth comes to the light. So the goal of the true believer practices the word of God with the goal of coming closer 
to the light of Christ, to become more like him, so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. His great desire and intent while sinning still is to become more like the light. This is profound. Both do. Crosso in verse 20 of the unbeliever and practice in verse 21. Very, sin- very close. Very close. Crosso or do in verse 20 speaks to a continuous journey. Both believer and unbeliever then practice sin. Romans 7 tells us that the same word for doing evil is Paul used concerning himself. The very thing I don't want to do, I practice. Same word. We need to understand this. Both the believer who is truly saved and the unbeliever do, verse 20, practice evil. Paul says in Romans 7, verses 15 and 19, that he's practicing evil. What's the difference? It is the intent. The unbeliever does sin hating the light. Not the believer. The believer sins, repents, hates that he sins, and the intent of his heart is to want to come to the light. In verse 21. Everything surrounding this is proof, not profession. How can anyone say, I don't need proof, I know I'm saved, when everything about intention The very intent of why we sin or don't sin is itemized in verses 19 to 21 by the Lord as evidentiary issues concerning testing and proofs. John chapter 8, verse 31. Starting with verse 30, actually, he spoke these things. Many came to believe in him. Did he focus then in John 8, verse 30? Did Jesus focus in on profession? You believe, yes, I believe. Good for you. The profession is the proof that you're saved. No, it is not. John 8, verse 30, he spoke these things. Many came to believe in him. They had faith in him. They made profession. Does Jesus focus in on the profession? No. Verse 31, so Jesus was saying though to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. That is evidence. That is proof. This belief was false. They become angry at him and they attack him later on. To be permanently enslaved to sin in verse 34 is evidence that one is not a believer. It is evidence. John chapter 15. So at least with our introductory question, if someone comes up to you and says, how do you know you're saved? You know that you would have to say two things. I know that I'm saved because I received Christ as Lord and Savior, repenting of my sins by faith alone. And then if they said, well, then how, how do you know for sure that you're really saved? What are the proofs? You would not refer back to your profession. You would say, that's how I got saved, but it's not the proof that I am saved. Are we clear on that? John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, that's evidence of conversion. The branches are believers. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. That's trials. Cleans. The pruning and cleaning can be very difficult at times. Through conviction, through guilt, through repentance, through trials. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. So there are branches that are claiming to be his in me, claim to be in Christ. Some are saved and some aren't. Profession has nothing to do with it. It's not even mentioned here in verses 1 to 11. Talking about true believers in their position, you were already clean because of the word. That's, that's salvation. That's, that's profession. You're already clean because of the word. The word cleaned you, transformed you, made you holy. In one shot at conversion. But then he goes right back in verse 4 to the evidences. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. So abiding is what produces the fruit. So it's not just fruit that is a test, it's abiding in Christ. That's astounding. What does the word mean? It means to remain under, to persevere, to continue in Christ. And how can we, when we don't see Christ, continue to abide in him? It's back to verse 3, the word. He just keeps repeating this over and over again. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. There is no power in a Christian to change themselves. For apart from me you can do nothing. It is only in Christ, in the vine, abiding in the word, remaining in the word. And that is empowered by the Spirit of Christ to manifest fruit. Judgment, verse 6, if anyone does not abide, fifth time the word abiding is used, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they're burned. A non-abiding professed believer is a hell-bound believer, professed believer. In case you don't know what abiding means, he repeats it in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, they remain. You don't forget. There is knowledge. There is growth in the word. There is submission to the word. It is not perennial ignorance. And such a person now is in the will of God because it says in verse 7, ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. We know from 1 John 5, you only get granted what is done in prayer when it is done according to the will of God. So now this person is praying according to the will of God because they know the word. You can't bear enough fruit. So he comes back to the fruit issue in verse 8. This is the sixth time fruit is mentioned. There's no such thing as little fruit. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. Not zero, not little, much. And when you're bearing much fruit, you prove to be my disciples. Does Christ need to be proven that you're his disciple? Absolutely not. He knows who his children are and who aren't. According to John 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. There's the word proof in verse 8. Who's the proof for? God, I have to see fruit now so I know this child of mine is truly saved. That's not the infinite God of the universe. Who needs to be proven? The disciples. You prove to yourself that you're my disciples if you're bearing much fruit. So the idea is the more fruit you have, the more abiding that produces the fruit, the more assurance you have. It is, it is progressive assurance. Eternal security is instantaneous. You're saved, you can't lose it. You don't grow in a security. It's boom, done at conversion. Assurance, being proven that you're a disciple, is progressive. 
More fruit, more assurance. Less fruit, less assurance. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me and I also loved you, abide in my love. He says back in verse 7, abide in the word. And now in verse 9, he says, abide in his love. What's the difference? They're synonymous. To love Jesus is to abide in his word, to remain under it, in it. And he confirms that in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. There it is. So a person who is claiming to be saved and is so massively and permanently ignorant of the scriptures and doesn't know his left hand from the right is a false believer. And it's not just knowing the Bible. He says in verse 10, you must keep. You have to obey it. Abiding requires knowing and keeping. Tenth time, ninth and tenth time, the word abide is used in verse 6. In verse 10, excuse me. You will abide in my love and abide in his love. And what's the first fruit that he mentions? Love. Verse 10. And what's the second fruit he mentions in verse 11? Joy. Everything's consistent from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, to here. It's incredible. Verse 16. You did not choose me, I chose you. First he chose us before the foundations of the world to be saved according to Ephesians 1. And then he appointed a theka, to lay, to place, to appoint for service, to appoint for transformation. And after I chose you, he saved us and appointed that you would go, after conversion, you go and bear fruit. The idea is you go out from profession to practice and bear fruit. And your fruit would remain. There's that word abide again. So that you will ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is incredible. A true believer bears fruit. That's the test. A true believer abides in the word and grows in keeping it. That's the test. A true believer loves Christ and loves others. In verse 12, that's the test. These are intertwined. Nothing about profession. Nothing. Profession is mentioned as a state of being. This is what happened in verse 3. Profession is, your conversion is in verse 3. A positional reality that you're made completely clean and holy. The rest of it is practice and doing. Empowered by Christ and the power of the Spirit. You can't do this in your own willpower. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. We see the professed evangelicalism running from all of this. Running from teaching, as I said this morning, running from the word. Professed believers landing in churches, come sit, listen, and leave. Perennially ignorant, perennially ungodly, having no conviction of sin. This is not what a true believer is. You and I are fools if we judge ourselves and others by profession alone. That is a fool. First Corinthians 11. So we're seeing that the apostle, Peter, is standing right in the midstream of this incredible doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the transformation of believers, when we will eventually get next time, start to parse and decline 
1 Peter 1, 7, and see what does he mean when he says, so that the proof of your faith. What is the proof there? We have to find what his proof is in 1 Peter 1, 7. But in 1 Corinthians 11, we're seeing this is the stream in which Peter is standing. Paul and Peter stand as pillars together, as apostles, teaching us that you don't judge yourself by profession. You judge yourself by practice, proofs. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We're not to eat and drink of communion in an unworthy manner. That raises the fundamental question, what would be an unworthy manner? And how do you go about making sure you're not unworthily partaking of communion? Well, I can tell you right up front what Paul's going to say, and you know it. He's not going to say, examine your profession." He says examine, but he doesn't say examine your profession. Look at verse 28. But a man must examine examine himself. And in so doing, he is is to eat of the bread and drink the cup. Dokimazo, examine. It's a present active imperative. This is commanded every time we partake of communion. You need to examine yourself. What am I supposed to examine? Verse 29. He who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. He is not examining his profession. He's examining the issue of sin. So he says, For this reason among you many are weak and sick, and a number die. Verse 30, these are true believers who are being judged because they don't examine themselves. When believers come to the Lord's table and don't examine themselves and don't deal with sin, if they're true believers, they die if they don't repent. So he says in verse 31, you need to judge yourself rightly so that you won't be judged. For when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Discipline is defined as the confrontation of sin in a believer's life in um, Hebrews chapter 12. To be disciplined by the Lord is not to be judged into hell. True believers can't lose their salvation. They're being disciplined to repent. One of the things they were sinning on is they were lusting after food and gluttons in verses 33 and 34. They saw the communion table as a way to fulfill their gluttonous lusts. Can you imagine? Let's not indict the Corinthians too much. Since we drag our sin natures into here, even when we have communion like next Sunday, we better self-examine. I am shocked, frankly, by how many leaders run communion in churches and don't give opportunity to repent and to judge. More than I should ever want to hear. And men, two of which I won't name by name, but I know they know a lot better than to do that, and they do it, because I've listened to their communion sermons. It would be something you should admonish your brother in Christ here, John Stevens, on is if I cause you to fly through communion without giving you and I an opportunity to examine for sin that we haven't repented on. If I ever do that, you come up and say, why did you do that? You did not follow the apostles' demands that we take time to examine. Do we see a lot of bad Christians dying because they abuse the table? I've never seen one. We've had a lot of bad Christians come and go in this church. Some have died. 
And I knew that when they just glibly partake of communion that they weren't examining because their lives continued to be atrocious. And they didn't die in verse 30. So the Bible's wrong. The Bible's wrong. You can come to the table in rebellion, partake of it, and you won't die. The Bible's wrong. Is it? Not saved. Second Corinthians 13. Second Corinthians 13. I'm building a case through the New Testament that Peter, who's an apostle, and we shouldn't be debating him anyways, right? I mean, he's an apostle. The Spirit of God wrote it in perfection through him, so there's a proof of your faith. We should never, never come before God and others with the pious angelic wings and the halo above us. I never question myself. I just trust that I'm saved. See my smile of holiness. Okay. 2 Corinthians 13, another one we know very well. An imperative command, perazzo, verse 5. What are you supposed to do? Test yourselves to see if you are growing in faith no in the faith that's a positional statement of conversion and then he uses that famous word dakimazo again in verse 5 examine yourselves why repeat it why test yourselves and why examine why is it being repeated because this is urgency there's not the testing of your profession. You're testing to see if Christ is in you at the end of verse 5. If you fail the test, what Paul is saying is if you fail the test, he's not in you. And what is the test? It's the same one that we saw in John 3, 19-21. He tells us what it is in verse 8. In regards to themselves, they did not fail the test because we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. This is a major test. We're for the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I love the Word of God. Where's the book of Ephesians? I, I don't know. It's in there somewhere. I think it's New Testament. I love the Word of God, and I just read a little daily bread every day. I love the Word of God. I spend five minutes a day to keep the devil away. I, I love a little Word of God because I love a little of the Word of God. I'm for the truth. No, we are not. We are people of the truth. The truth is to, as Spurgeon said, our blood is to be bibbling. How does a man like Spurgeon at age 18 become a pastor just after a few years after his conversion when he never went to Bible school. <gasps> never went to Bible school. <gasps> Didn't have a master's degree. <gasps> Even worse. Didn't have a doctorate. Oh, that's the third strike against him. What a man are claiming to be men of God who have the bachelor's degree, master's, and doctorate, which in and of themselves, divorced from context, are not evil, but they do not a real Christian make. I have known some wicked theologians who have or had a doctorate. The issue is not 
your theological and educational acumens. It's verse 8, so simple. Are you for the truth? And don't let us tell God that we're for the truth when we would rather watch TV than study and practice and apply it. A second proof is in verse 9. For we rejoice when we ourselves are powerless and you are strong. That you would be made complete. That's another test. He says, even we apostles have no power. And we rejoice that we don't, so we can't boast in ourselves. That is a great test. I have no power to live the Christian life, only the power of Christ. And he says, we rejoice that you would be made complete, growing in maturity, another test. Nothing about profession. Amazing. We can never be sure that we're saved. Only the Lord knows. Really? Then why test? Why take a test? So you go to school and you take a test at college. And the professor says, you'll take the test and you'll never know what you got right or wrong and you'll never know whether you passed or failed. So take the test. We'd all look at each other in the seats and say, well, why are we doing this? Why am I taking a test if it has nothing to do with me passing or not passing? You take a test so that you can know for sure, definitive proof that I'm a true believer. And remember, it's progressive. As we learned back in John 15, it's progressive. Much fruit, much proof. And it's a realization, as Paul said in verse 6. I trust that you will realize. It is a, it is a mind realization. It is coming to a firm conclusion, looking at the evidences that I know that I'm saved. And as we'll see next time in the series in Thanksgiving, on boredom is the counter to worship, as we learned in this Thanksgiving. And I pick that series up again next year, and we'll be waiting in abated breath for 12 months to get the next part, I'm sure. And the issue is how? Could I ever come to a firm conclusion that I love Jesus Christ when the truth bores me? First John chapter 5. Last one. The final one is Revelation 20. I used that this morning where God judges on the great white throne judgment, judges individuals based on deeds, not profession. First John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's all it takes. All it takes. You're saved by faith, not by works. First John 5, 1 John 5.1. So simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Of course, we know that belief is something that even the demons have, right? So it's a belief that is saving faith, not faith. It is saving faith. Well, what's the difference between, James says, the demons believe and shudder. The demons know that he's Jesus Christ, the Lord God of the universe, and they fear him. What's the difference? Our belief is not just knowing. It is not just fearing. It is turning from sin and in faith, repenting and placing ourselves under his lordship, and no demon ever does that. That's saving faith. That's belief. And right away after profession, he goes into evidences. Verse 1. And whoever loves the Father, in other words, is converted, loves what? The child born of him. We love the body. 
How can you love the body of Christ if we're rarely around it? How? Here's a more sobering one. How am I loving the body if I come in late, sit down, stare at everybody like at a ball game, get up and walk out? How do I have an opportunity to love the body that way? Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. Now remember what he says here. You believe, verse 1, and when you are truly saved, the test is you love the children of God. So the test is loving other believers in this context. And in verse 2, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Oh, so now look at the progression. Believe, verse 1, born again. Born again, verse 2, love God, love his word, keep it, observe his keep. So I believe truly saved, verse 1a, then I jump to verse 2, and it is when I know in my mind that I love the children of God because I love God first and observe his commandments. Then thirdly, the test is I love the body of Christ. A truly born-again Christian Loves God, and the love is shown at the end of verse 2 by observing the commandments of God. That's the evidence. That's the proof here. And when I truly am born again and love God and love his commandments, I love the body. And how on earth would we show that? Praying together. Fellowshipping, encouraging each other with words and actions of love for each other. Thirdly, serving each other with our gifts, discipling each other. That's love. And so in verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. See, you're saved. So that you may know that you have eternal life. The entire book was written to give you tests and proofs. If proofs are false or bad or unspiritual, then we need to cut 1 John completely out of our Bibles because that's the whole book. And he says in verse 14, this is the confidence, the assurance that we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He gives another test, not profession, but faith in prayer. Kill off prayer. Kill off the word of God. Be selfish. Don't worry about anybody else in the church. Do your own thing. Sail your own ship. But make sure you're in church every Sunday morning. That's not confidence. But I know I'm saved. How do you know? I just know. Hell, sadly and tragically, right now is filled with probably millions of professed believers that are screaming right at this moment, Why am I here? I know I am saved. So there you have it. So number three in conclusion this evening, back to your note sheet. In fact, I have not found a single passage in the Bible that says one proves one is saved simply by reviewing the profession of one's faith. If you lead someone to Christ, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. You lead them to Christ, You review the profession, yes, but the purpose of one-on-one discipleship is this. 
to assess the legitimacy of the conversion. That's discipling. That's discipling, to assess the legitimacy of the conversion over time. Showing the believer how they are to live, testing and examining for proofs of transformation. That's what discipleship is. It is not a continuous review of profession. So in fact, I've not found a single passage in the Bible that says one proves one is saved simply by reviewing the profession of faith. Why? I gave you the answer right there. By the repeated warnings about this issue in the New Testament, it seems to be very, very easy to sincerely make a false profession of saving faith in Christ. The greater the warning, the greater the danger. Why are we hearing so much about North Korea the little Three Stooges man with the bowl-cut haircut said yesterday, he will have the largest nuclear force in the world soon to bring the United States to its knees. Scares the living daylights out of people. This psycho dude, the sociopathic mass murderer who is killing off his own population by the millions, and from outer space, satellites can see North Korea completely dark in the middle of winter with no power. And this psycho dude is doing this and warning us that he's got the finger on the button. And we're being warned and warned and warned because the threat is real. Warning upon warning. Examine. Look for practice. See proofs. It is so easy to sincerely make a false profession. Our Savior is so loving. Please look for proof, I beg of you, is what the Word of God says. What a God to warn us before it's too late, huh? What a God. He loves us, so he warns us. That's the Savior who cares. What fools we are to ignore the warnings. All right. So now we'll come to the major one that Peter has next Sunday. And it's only one. One singular proof. It is so important he doesn't mention any others. That makes that one singular proof extremely important to test ourselves on. All I can say is thank you, Lord, for when we fall from practical grace of obedience that you strike us with loss of assurance. We deserve that. You chastise us into doubt because of waywardness. And for the true believer, that drives us to our knees to repent, drives us back into the word and into prayer, and then you bathe our minds with confidence well earned once again. We can't obey in our own power. We are powerless, so we plead upon you to Give us that hunger for holiness that I mentioned this morning. 
A hunger for repentance that I mentioned this morning. A hunger for the word that I mentioned this morning. A hunger in the introduction this morning that I mentioned for doing your will. So that we can rest easy at night, that if we were to die in our sleep, we go into your presence. How do carnal believers sleep at night, Lord? How do they do it? We should be awake with terror, not knowing where we would end up if we were to stop breathing tonight. As adults in bed, who aren't living for you. Help us, Lord. Empower us. Show us our true condition. Now, before it's too late, in Jesus' name, amen.